welcome to this podcast of the Centre for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. I'm Thomas Peake and today we'll be speaking with Luke Glanville on his important new book, Sharing Responsibility, The History and Future of Protection from Atrocities, published with Princeton University Press. Luke is a widely published expert in the history and the politics of humanitarian protection and the responsibility to protect. He is an associate professor at the Department of International Relations, Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. Welcome, Luke. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. And uh, yeah, first of all, I'd just like to say that uh, this is an incredibly ambitious and, and wide-ranging book. And of, of course, it comes at a time when international attention is uh, yet again uh, focused on the depressing spectacle of multiple humanitarian crises, be they in Yemen, China, Myanmar, Democratic Republic of Congo, or, or many other places. And it seems that your book seeks to di diagnose where we have come from and where we might be going in the continuing battle against mass atrocities. And you generate some really new and imaginative solutions to quote-unquote old problems, uh, which is no small feat in this field. And, and you look at the shared responsibility to protect through five perspectives, the history of international thought, history of international practice, international ethics, international law, and international politics. And you, you show how each of these fields intersects to produce richer answers to these uh, very pressing questions around the politics of protection than, than the, the, any of these kind of perspectives approached individually will, will do. And so I'd just like to ask what drove this inquiry and how do you see the state of research into R2P today? Yeah, thanks. Well, I think um, the state of research into R2P is really strong at the moment. I think it's it's reached quite a mature state. I think scholars these days increasingly avoid some of the um, euphoric and overly optimistic, perhaps slightly reckless pronouncements on R2P that sometimes were made in earlier years. And so right now there's great research coming out on R2P and on related themes of past and present international engagement with genocides and mass atrocities. Alex Bellamy has a book coming out soon on Syria that'll be amazing. I haven't yet read uh, Dirk Moses's new book on problems of genocide, but I've heard him give talks on that project. That promises to be a really important, insightful book. Your own book, Tom, on Westphalia and humanitarian intervention is out soon, and that makes a terrific contribution. And numerous others have produced superb books over the last couple of years. Eglantine Staunton on France and R2P, James Patterson on non-militaristic means of pursuing R2P, I think is a real uh, maturity and a sensible cautiousness and historical sensitivity to much of the new research into R2P and related themes. So as for what drove the research for my own book, I published a previous book, my first book, um, titled Sovereignty and the Responsibility to Protect back in 2014. And that book offered a 500-year history of the development of the responsibilities of sovereign states for the protection of their own populations. And it sought to address a myth that had emerged around R2P, which was that, well, until R2P came along, sovereignty had tended to entail rights, including absolute rights of non-intervention, but not responsibilities, including responsibilities to protect one's own population. And so that book told... Um, tried to correct that myth by telling a story of past and present responsibilities of states with respect to their own populations. 
but it set aside a different question, which asks whether states might also have a responsibility to protect vulnerable populations beyond their borders. So that's the question I began with when embarking on research for this new book, Sharing Responsibility. And it seemed to me that while the turn to history in international relations and also the turn to the international among historians in recent decades has seen a proliferation of excellent published histories on human protection and humanitarianism and humanitarian intervention. And I really want to emphasize that I've learned a lot from these wonderful histories, but I had this sense that many of these histories have often either contributed to the persistence of, or at least haven't really addressed a different myth that emerged around R2P, which is that while ideas of intervention and international human protection have long histories, States until recently conceived merely a right to protect distant vulnerable people when they wanted to. States weren't thought to be burdened by any obligation to care for strangers when they didn't want to. But as I got into the research, it quickly became clear that this is, as I say, a myth. It's false. For much of the past 500 years, when justifying action taken to protect people beyond borders or when encouraging others to act, states have almost always used the kind of language of responsibility or duty or obligation or an imperative to love their neighbour or uphold justice. And so I, I set out to tell that historical story, the story of how states have thought about and acted on a responsibility to protect strangers. But I quickly found that looking at this history revealed um, that so many of the debates that we have today about ethics and law and politics around R2P uh, can be better informed and can be enriched by thinking about this history. Because not only does it turn out that we've long used this language of responsibility and duty when thinking about um, engagement with atrocities beyond borders, but it turns out that political leaders have have used arguments that are very familiar to us today. Uh, and sometimes they've carried out these responsibilities with a measure of integrity. Sometimes they've knowingly manipulated and abused it. Sometimes they've um, tried to dilute these responsibilities by saying we need to prioritise the national interest. Other times they've tried to argue that uh, these duties converge with our interests. Sometimes states and their leaders talk about how protection obligations ought to be shared among states and they might do this to persuade other states to contribute to protection efforts. They might do this to try to shift blame to other states. And sometimes these responsibilities have been codified in law and written into the mandates of international institutions from as early as the Peace of Westphalia onwards, which clearly um, established obligations with respect to the protection of the religious liberty of individuals beyond borders. And so we, we hear echoes of each of these kinds of efforts to perform and abuse and negotiate and evade and codify responsibilities beyond borders in history and also in the global politics of human protection today. So I quickly realised I wanted to do more than just tell a historical story in this book. I wanted to try to draw on this history to say some useful things about the present day. Thank you. Yeah, and and, and I I I think some of these these things you said about uh, the present day, as I said, were very very creative um, and, and and innovative. And 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 on on this this theme you you've just raised and it's what I've taken from your new book and and also from your uh your your work around the responsibility in the history of international politics more generally 
is that the same problems uh, often couched in the same language seem to recur over time. Um, and, and, and clearly uh, the his, historical understanding enriches um, contemporary approaches. But I wonder where, given, given this, these, these kind of this recurrence of this continuity of, of, of discourse across time, where do we find the particular novelty of R2P? How is R2P different to previously conceived obligations? And to what extent does it represent a historical progress? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't want to be heard as suggesting that there haven't been real and significant changes over time with respect to ideas or practices that today uh, we might think of as falling under this umbrella of R2P. There absolutely have been real and significant changes. For starters, in previous centuries, responsibilities for extraterritorial protection were commonly constructed and claimed by an exclusive club of European or Western powers and imposed upon particular communities and peoples outside the club. And so today, for all the inequities and hypocrisies that continue to mark the politics of human protection, I think it's it's incredibly noteworthy that all states have agreed that they share a responsibility to protect, described at the UN World Summit in 2005 in terms of a responsibility to encourage and help each other prevent atrocities and to take timely and decisive action to put an end to atrocities when they break out. But I also want to say that whatever the successes of international efforts this century to act on these commitments and to more consistently and more effectively protect people from atrocities, and I argue in the book that there have been such successes, but still the project of human protection I think is in crisis today as as multiple forces push against the commitment of states to protect the vulnerable beyond borders. So we can look at, say, the rise of populist nationalism in many Western states over the past few years, not least in the United States, which saw them turning backs, turning their backs on global responsibilities. We can think of the increasing frustration and tiredness of Western hypocrisy that has emboldened other states, not least Russia, I think, to resist whatever efforts the West has continued to offer to try to shame them into facilitating the protection of strangers. And we can think of the rising confidence of non-Western powers, not least China, which leads them to uh, more brazenly challenge prevailing notions of global rights and responsibilities, in part because the application of these ideas by Western powers in recent decades, I think, has so often revived traumatic and humiliating memories of imperialist interventionism beyond the West. And so for all the real progress, I think, uh, in international discourse and even in international action, Rohingya civilians and many others continue to suffer from international neglect. Indeed, other civilians such as those in Yemen and elsewhere are victims of international complicity in their suffering as those in the West who present themselves as champions of global responsibilities, facilitate the crimes of the Saudis, for example. And still other civilians, such as those in Libya, suffer in part due to what I take to be a sincere effort at protecting them in 2011 that went horribly wrong. Thank you, yes. And, and you, uh, you raise a, a very good good point here. That is the kind of the, um, the discourse around protection recurs it, it's also as you say kind of ingrained constitutional arrangements uh, in the in the international sphere at least since 
1648 with the Peace of Westphalia um, have, have have been a part of the the international architecture, and and clearly this is still little understood. Um, and in this time of fractured multilateralism, where we're kind of plagued by many of these problems you've just pointed out, and um, I think what you, you you describe in your book as a crisis of abandoned responsibilities, it feels like re- reminding people of this uh, kind of institutionalized history is is an important thing to do. And so, I wonder what sense you have of how the, this thinking with history, as you describe it in your book, can or should shape international practice and discourse. Yeah, I I try to think with history so as to help us understand the present day shared responsibilities of states to protect the vulnerable beyond their borders. I think I probably set out at first when I was writing the book to use history to help us think through, as you say, what I, what I perceive to be a crisis of abandoned responsibilities. But as I thought more and more about how these responsibilities have so often been mishandled or abused by powerful actors in the past and continue to be so often mishandled or abused by the powerful today, I realised I also needed to step back and not take for granted that this abandonment of responsibilities necessarily represents a crisis after all, or at least I needed to work harder to acknowledge and wrestle with the tensions between, I suppose, the certain some of the certain hopes that I have had for R2P and on one hand, and on the other hand, the fact that the over-eager invocation of global responsibilities for human protection by certain states in certain cases in recent decades has done much more harm than good. And so I engage with past ideas and practices. As I set it out in the book, I do I do it for three purposes. First, I seek to clarify what, if anything, is novel about present ideas and practices regarding responsibilities for human protection. Second, I try to retrieve forgotten or neglected ways of thinking about responsibilities that can help us understand the possibilities of protection today, but also the limits and also the hazards of protection. And third, I think with history to try to appreciate the implications of past uses and abuses of protection responsibilities for our thinking about R2P today. So for example, to help us, uh, I turn to history to help us grasp the ethical obligations that are produced by historical abuses of responsibilities today, and also to help us better appreciate I think the traumas, but also the temptations of abuse that continue to mark the politics of protection today. Thank you. And 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 um this is an important theme of your book, I found. This this uh this tension inherent in, in claims about duties to humanity or kind of uses and, and abuses. Um and this is still um clearly evident in the discourse around R2P at the UN or or simply within um uh, ac- academic circles, um, and I wonder if you could speak a bit more um, about um, how unpacking this historical tension of uses and abuses, and, and placing it within its historical contexts, um, res- resolve the tension, or, or, mm. or does it? Yeah, there. I, I like that question. I like how you put it. I, I'm not sure that unpacking this history does necessarily resolve the tension. 
So this tension between this need to discharge duties of humanity so as to protect vulnerable people on one hand, and on the other hand, the enduring temptation to abuse these duties for one's own selfish, perhaps imperialist ends. Or at least I'm not confident that I've found a convincing resolution to this tension. I think much of what I do in the chapters on history and on contemporary ethics in the book is just wrestle with this tension as best I can. So I had a moment a couple of years ago when I was midway through writing the book and I was reading Duncan Bell's wonderful book, Reordering the World, and I came across a quote from the 19th century Oxford political economist Herman Merivale that really stopped me in my tracks. So Merivale was delivering a series of lectures on colonisation around 1840. In one of the lectures which was about the duty of colonial governments to protect and civilise Indigenous people. Maryvale began the lecture by lamenting what he openly admitted was the ferocity and the treachery that have marked the conduct of colonial powers in their relations with Indigenous peoples. But at the same time, he refused to give up on the settler colonial projects. So instead, he insisted, and this is the line that especially struck me, he insisted that our errors are not of conception so much as of execution. And so he then proceeded to outline a range of new laws and new measures that might better ensure the protection of Indigenous peoples. And as I read that line by Maryvale, that our errors are not of conception so much as of execution, it sounded immediately, immediately to me so much like how I and perhaps others have often been tempted to think about R2P. So we look at, for example, the disastrous mess that Libya has become over the decades since NATO's intervention in 2011. And so we think hard about how the R2P principle might be reformed or better understood so as to avoid such negative results in the future. That is, we tell ourselves, as Maryvale did, that our errors are not of conception so much as of execution. But I, I suddenly ask myself, what if those of us who, more than a century and a half after Maryvale, continue to believe in the possibility of responsible and effective international protection, despite failure after failure, what if we're just fooling ourselves, as I think Maryvale probably was? What if our errors really are of conception after all? What if there's something inherently problematic about R2P? So that's, that's something I really try to wrestle with in the book, seeking to respond to the very insightful post-colonial criticisms of R2P offered in recent years by scholars such as Adam Getachew, Jessica White and others. I have an answer. I think. I don't think the R2P concept is the problem. I don't think R2P mirrors past European imperial protectionist projects as plainly as some critics do. I think the differences between the two are significant. I think R2P shouldn't be reduced to military intervention. It certainly shouldn't be reduced to Libya. If we look more broadly at the practice of R2P over the last couple of decades, it has had some real successes in helping prompt the prevention of atrocities and in providing relief to the victims of atrocities. I think there are tools in the R2P toolkit, aside from military intervention, that have a decent and reliable track record of success. And even military intervention is something that I'd, I'm not quite ready to abandon as an option that might need to be considered in extraordinarily rare circumstances. But it does seem clear to me that say, the, uh, the lures of civilizational self-confidence and, and narratives of progress that captured 19th century humanitarians and so often compromised their efforts to protect the vulnerable, these are still with us. And these imperial legacies haunt R2P 
and should give pause, I think, to anyone contemplating, especially the resort to force, to protect the vulnerable today. So at the very least, I think there's a need to slow down, as Jeannie Moorfield puts it, although I don't think she would agree with uh, what I'm arguing here, but there's a need to slow down and to reflect on history before attending to contemporary injustices. Do you think that the literature or that the uh, kind of prevalent thinking about humanitarian intervention today um, is this something which is distinct from R2P or or even people who, um, uh, you know, write about military intervention within the context of R2P, it's kind of within the third pillar. Do you think this is inevitably kind of tainted by hubris? Oh, that's a good question. It certainly is often tainted by hubris. Um, and I think there does seem to be this enduring temptation that powerful actors have to seek to, you know, remake the world in their image um, and to use force to do so. And so often throughout history and so often in recent years, that's gone terribly wrong. I think um, there are certainly examples of uses of military intervention that have saved substantial numbers of lives. I often think of, and they're, they're, they're incredibly problematic examples, but they're examples of actions that save lives, such as Vietnam's intervention in Pol Pot's Cambodia in the 70s, or Tanzania's intervention in Idi Amin's Uganda in the 70s. Um, the Vietnamese intervention in particular, no one particularly makes the case that this was fought for particularly altruistic humanitarian reasons, but it did a whole lot of good, it seems. Um, and uh, yeah, which is why, as I say, I'm, I'm not willing yet to give up on the idea of military intervention as being a necessary component of R2P in extraordinarily rare circumstances. Um, and, he, and both of those examples included regime change, which makes me inclined to say that um, I don't think we should be so quick to rule out regime change as an aspect or an outcome of uh, legitimate, justifiable military intervention. I think others have been too quick to uh, rule out regime change. I tend to think if it's a tyrannical government that's committing the atrocities, regime change is often going to be uh, the only effective way of using force to stop that if force is going to be used. I tend to think, though, most of the time, force is just the wrong option to take. Mm, it's, uh, that's much, much food for thought in that answer. Thank you. Um, and kind of sticking with the discussion around kind of um, international practice, something that I found uh, very interesting in your in, in your work and perhaps not as widely discussed as it might be in the literature is the idea of protection as an imperfect duty. As you rightly state, many theorists approach the problem of this as if states were only faced with one atrocity at a time, whereas Kant's uh, discussion on the duties of virtue highlights the reality that each actor in particular will likely be faced with numerous deserving causes which they will inevitably have to weigh against one another. And this is something which doesn't really kind of often figure in the mental models of, 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 of theorising. And, and you've got, a, you've got a, a, a brilliant quote here which sums it up perfectly from Barack Obama, where he says, how do I weigh tens of thousands who've been killed in Syria versus the tens of thousands who are currently being killed in the Congo? 
Um, and, and it seems that not addressing this question might simply leave us with the CNN effect as the default answer. Um, and I was hoping you could say a little bit more on how you approach this. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's kind of a central argument of the book is that when we think carefully about the nature of R2P as a responsibility, it turns out that it's an imperfect duty in at least three distinct senses. And I think recognition of these various imperfections helps us more rightly grasp some of the nuances of ethics and law and politics of R2P and to better calibrate our expectations of R2P as a norm. Let me backtrack a little. So over the last few decades, constructivist IR scholars have examined the development and impact of a range of human rights-based international norms. Most of these norms entail what's described as negative duties. That is, they require states to refrain from certain behaviours. Examples include duties to not engage in practices of slavery or colonialism or duties to not use chemical weapons or landmines, say. And so violation of each of these duties is always inexcusable. And as such, these negative duties are also known as perfect duties. And in contrast, R2P, or at least the, the second and third pillars, pillars of R2P, entail positive duties. That is, rather than a duty to refrain from doing something abhorrent, it's a duty to do something good. It requires that states take action on behalf of the international community to protect vulnerable people beyond their borders. And so when we think carefully about what is required of any individual state in any individual setting, we find that this positive duty is imperfect in three different senses. And I find these three senses of imperfection through the works of uh, three 17th and 18th century thinkers, Pufendorf, Vettel, and as you mentioned, Kant. And I explore, firstly, how each sense of imperfection has marked the politics of human protection for centuries, and also how it continues to do so today. So I'll just, I'll, if it's okay, I'll quickly take you through these senses just to give you a, a, a sense of uh, the pervasiveness of these imperfections. So the first sense of imperfection is articulated by Pufendorf, which is the duty to care for those beyond borders is imperfect because it's rightly subject to the judgment of each state, which needs to weigh the costs and the risks of protecting outsiders against the duty to care for their own population. And political leaders have often appealed to this idea, even if they don't speak in terms of imperfect duties, and they continue to do so. That is, they have long offered national interest-based arguments for why they can't do more to protect vulnerable foreigners. The second sense of imperfection was alluded to by Vattel. That is, while every person may have a right to be protected from atrocities, the duty to ensure such protection when a host government is unable or unwilling to provide it falls on no particular state. And various leaders have deployed this idea over the years. So British leaders in the 19th century sometimes rejected calls for greater efforts to protect vulnerable Christians in the Ottoman Empire on the grounds that Britain didn't have a special or a peculiar responsibility, as politicians put it. They didn't have a special or peculiar responsibility that fell more heavily on them than any of the other European powers. And then this third sense of imperfection is the one that you mentioned in your question. And I think it's one that's been almost entirely overlooked by scholars. It's it's extrapolated from Kant's discussion of duties of virtue. And it is that the nature of the imperfection is that given that the international community will usually be confronted with multiple situations involving the threat or perpetration of atrocities, each state that seeks to discharge its duties really has uh, 
freedom to choose who in particular they should protect and what measures they should use to protect them, unless there are other reasons for them to narrow those decisions. And so this idea has, has long been deployed by leaders seeking to dilute pressure for a stronger response to a particular crisis, including, as you note, when Obama asks how he's supposed to weigh the deaths of Syrians against the deaths of civilians in the Congo. And so that kind of question that Obama asked, I think, can be posed for cynical reasons, so as to try to dilute pressure to act in Syria, for example. But I think it's also an important question to which theorists haven't given enough attention. That is, theorists of R2P and human protection and intervention have tended to proceed on the assumption that the world is confronted with only a single atrocity crisis at a time, and our task is to identify which state or states bear responsibility for responding. And this kind of narrow uh, mode of ethical theorizing has, I think, hampered the development of ideas about how to work toward more optimal coverage in the protection of civilians the world over from atrocities. And I think when we place Fattel's question, which state should act to protect civilians in a given case, and the Kantian question, which is to which among many cases of atrocities should a given state respond, when we place these two questions alongside each other, I think it becomes clear that the answers need to be woven together. So the responsibility to protect, as I say, needs needs to be shared. And so there's a chapter in the book on ethics in which I try to explain how these various senses of imperfection might be overcome. And to do this, I try to identify some guiding principles for the fair and the, the efficient distribution of responsibilities among states so that the multiplicity of threatened and actual crises confronted at a given mo- moment can be addressed insofar as is possible. And actually, that that task is one that I'm now in the process of pursuing more fully with James Patterson, a wonderful scholar at Manchester, who's been thinking along similar lines in recent years. So James and I are in the early stages of writing a book together on the global ethics of prioritization, trying to think through how states should prioritize among multiple global issues and crises that they're confronted with at any given moment. So how they should prioritize among their various imperfect responsibilities, including with respect to mass atrocities, but also issues of global poverty and global pandemics and climate change, etc. Thank you. And it sounds like uh, you're, you're already working on another fascinating book. Um, uh, and I suppose another sense in which imperfect duties are, can be rendered more more perfect are, are kind of legal developments uh, and and in your book you emphasize that the important that the many of these important kind of legal developments of recent years whilst they're positive the real onus of change should always be on the further uh, promulgation of influential social norms which will encourage states to take material risks um you know for, for example i suppose one way you do that in your book is by when you say that too often the onus is is placed on um enforcing or kind of um shouldering responsibilities as a burden whereas it could be discursively framed more as an opportunity and so i wonder if you could say a little more however about how international law factors in this process and, and where where is the value there yeah yeah i so in the chapter on contemporary international law i, I offer kind of a two-part argument and the two parts are in a sense quite opposed to each other um on the one hand i argue that extraterritorial obligations for the prevention of genocide and other atrocity crimes have become much more firmly established in law in recent years than is commonly recognized so the international court of justice 
especially in its 2007 judgment on Bosnia v. Serbia, known as the Genocide Judgment, and also the International Law Commission, especially in its work on the obligation to cooperate to end serious breaches of peremptory norms. Both these bodies, the ICJ and the ILC, both have offered quite bold statements in recent years indicating that states have a legal obligation to do whatever they can to protect populations beyond their borders from atrocity crimes. So the, the ICJ went so far as to say in its genocide judgment that all states are obliged to, ablo- to employ all means reasonably available to them so as to prevent genocide so far as possible, regardless of where the genocide occurs. So this is a monumental legal claim, a legal judgment. But on the other hand, this is the second part of my argument, I argue that these legal developments are troublingly incoherent. And I think this incoherence stems from a failure to reckon with the imperfections of these extraterritorial obligations. So to start with, there's a lack of clarity around questions of enforcement and reparation. But more importantly, I think it's unclear how these questions could be given coherent answers, especially in contexts, which is so often the case, where multiple states are responsible for failing to prevent a given case of atrocities. Second, the ICG claim, ICJ claims that the scope of protection obligations should be grounded in the capacities of states. And this claim, as some other legal scholars have noticed, seems to place an unfair burden of obligation on those who have diligently cultivated capacity for extraterritorial protection. And then third, there's ambiguity about how a state can be legally obligated to respond to a single particular atrocity crisis in a given instance, since every state will usually be confronted with multiple crises at any one time around the world to which they could justifiably direct their resources. So I conclude my chapter on international law by suggesting that while recent and ongoing legal developments are significant and in some specific ways very useful, I think, the way forward in encouraging states to respond to atrocities beyond their borders probably lies less in the further development of law than in the diffusion and internalization of social norms that lead states to accept risks and costs in protecting vulnerable outsiders. That being said, I'll I'll be watching closely for the development, possibly, of the next few years of a Convention on Crimes Against Humanity, perhaps, which the ILC has proposed to supplement the Genocide Convention, as I do think that such legal developments can and make re- can make real contributions to the solidification of these social norms. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very, very insightful answer. Possibly the most pressing question in your book, and uh, I suppose, is, is what all this means for suffering civilians and what might be done to make states... Um, in your very evocative words, take up their shared responsibilities more responsibly, more consistently, and more effectively. And in this vein, what would you hope that policymakers and political leaders reading your work might might take away from it? Yeah, yeah, nice question. I, well, the fact that RGP is, in multiple senses, as I say, an imperfect duty, I think this this provide states with numerous excuses, numerous means of deflecting pressure to act when they don't want to act. They don't want to take meaningful action in response to atrocities beyond their borders. But we've seen um, that when states do genuinely wrestle with these imperfections, as they have at certain times in history, rather than using them as an excuse for inaction, they can at times be moved to make meaningful efforts 
individually and collectively to care for strangers. This imperfect and shared nature of the responsibility certainly generates opportunities for buck passing and blame shifting, but it also creates opportunities, I think, for creative burden sharing and meaningful action for the sake of the distant vulnerable. So I think to kind of push that further, I can suggest perhaps two fundamental shifts in thinking that political leaders and other proponents of human protection might usefully promote to encourage more meaningful and more effective protective action in the future. I think first, if we take if we treat history seriously, including both the long history of Western imperialism and also the, the more recent history of Western interventionism, I think we quickly come to see that powerful Western states urgently need to adopt a more humble and even a more repentant global politics. They can't expect to successfully cajole or shame Russia and China into facilitating coercive humanitarian protection projects in the Security Council as they once could, or at least not in instances where Russia or China discern an interest in standing in the way. And so states that seek to protect strangers will need to increasingly rely on consensual measures rather than measures that challenge state sovereignty, working with host states rather than against host states um, to ensure that populations are protected. And this is not merely necessary for this political purpose of sustaining some international consensus on human protection. I think it's ethically necessary too, since powerful states have so often succumbed to, as we've been saying, these temptations of hubris and abuse when undertaking uh, non-consensual military interventions. And so I argue in the book that if powerful states are so intent on protecting foreigners as they inevitably insist they are whenever they're defending controversial military interventions, they're not going to lack opportunities to do so via other means. Most obviously, these states could resettle more refugees fleeing atrocities. And the willingness of states to welcome vulnerable outsiders into the communities, I think, constitutes an especially useful test of how sincere they really are about caring for strangers. And then then the second uh, reframing, I suppose, that I would suggest, I I think those practitioners who want to advance the cause of international human protection might usefully reconsider how they frame protection responsibilities. And you touched on this a moment earlier. I think so often responsibilities are cast as burdens, but this act of framing the responsibility to protect as a burden risks implying that it's something to be accepted reluctantly and something to be avoided and shifted onto others wherever possible. So what if we were to cast the responsibility to protect not as a burden but as an opportunity? So I talk at a couple of different points in the book about Leibniz who proposed in the 17th century that moral action should be grounded or can be grounded in the happiness that people gain from promoting the well-being of others. And political leaders have occasionally appealed to such an idea to justify decisions to care for victims of atrocities or to encourage citizens to accept the sacrifices involved. I often bring up the example of Angela Merkel, who, when opening Germany's borders to hundreds of thousands of Syrians fleeing atrocities in 2015, repeatedly talked about how happy she was that Germany was becoming a country that welcomes vulnerable foreigners and how proud the German people could be of what they were doing. So I think there's much to be gained by states and their leaders reframing their global responsibilities in terms of the profound opportunities they have to accept risks and costs for the sake of outsiders. And I um, I open the book and I end the book too with the example of the Gambia, that small West African state, which I think can provide some inspiration here. 
The Gambia's own experiences of human rights abuses motivated it to speak out against the oppression of the Rohingya and bring a, a case against Myanmar to the ICJ in 2019. The Gambia discerned that it was obliged under the Genocide Convention to do what it could to bring the atrocities against the Rohingya to an end. And as the Gambia's Minister of Justice said, by taking this case to the ICJ, his country was showing the world, I'm quoting from him here, the country was showing the world that you don't have to have military power or economic power to denounce oppressions, legal obligation and moral responsibility exist for all states, big or small, he said. And so recognising that it shared with the rest of the international community an imperfect responsibility to protect, the Gambia embraced the, the opportunity to do what it could. And I think perhaps that might be recognised as a, as a useful model of potentially costly, potentially risky action that other states might be inspired to follow. Thank you, Luke. And that was a, um, that, that was a very, very interesting answer. And I, I think this idea of encouraging a kind of a more noble and a, and a broader international ethic in the kind of the self-image of, of political leaders is, is kind of a particularly needed today in, in, in the, way, the way we see so many um, situations and so much discourse uh, playing out. Yeah, I thank you very much for your time. That's the final <laughs> question. Um, and yeah, and I'd just like to just like to thank you once again for for taking part in 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 this and for for lending us your time. And it's a it's a truly important and fascinating book. Um, and it was it was very enlightening to discuss it with you. Thank you very oh, th much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great, great questions. Great to chat with you. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast on genocide and mass atrocity prevention and the responsibility to protect. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at Cam Geopolitics. All of our events are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.